Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are in fact our hope and salvation. For those of us who came here today with heavy hearts, trying to sift through grief, loss, disappointment, and betrayal. Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us as hope? And to those of us who feel like we have lost our way, those of us who are trapped under the suffocating will, uh, weight of guilt and shame and regret, Lord, reveal yourself to us as salvation, rescue, redemption, restoration, healing here now in this moment. God, when we sing Spirit of God, speak to your church, it's not, it's not a line in a song, it's, it's a cry of our heart. Lord Jesus, we gather not to be inspired or entertained, we come to be changed transformed from the gut level all the way through our beings. So Jesus, if there's cracked thinking in our minds, I pray that you would reach in and restore us to truth. Lord, I pray that if there are fractures in our heart that is breaking, I pray that you would reach in and you would make it whole. I pray that if there's any point of our spirit that lacks integrity, any part of ourselves that's, that's double-minded or living with conflict, living in conflict with your truth, I pray, shine the light of your truth on our souls. And where there is slavery of any kind, Lord, name it and break off those shackles so that we can run in the freedom that the resurrected Jesus has invited us to. Speak to us, Lord, not to our minds only, but to our hearts and our souls as well. We pray these things in the perfect name of Jesus, our crucified and risen Lord. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, today we're continuing our third part in a series called Run, Church, Run. And we're using that kind of running as a, a, a metaphor, an image that talks about God's heart for mission. God's heart to see all peoples everywhere informed of his truth and invited into his journey. And we truly believe here at Central Wrestling, we truly believe that the gift of Jesus Christ is for everyone. There's not a single person that falls outside of the redeeming power of Jesus Christ saving work on a Roman cross so many years ago. That said, we believe that the message of Jesus can actually come through anyone. It's for everyone, but it can come through anyone. If you have had a redeeming encounter with Jesus Christ, if you are walking with him as Lord, Savior, God, and King, it is natural, yes, expected, for that message, for that gift to pour out of your life wherever you go. A few years ago, my daughter Naomi was in third grade. And a classmate of hers uh, named Mohammed was having a conversation with other students who thought that he had a crush on another classmate. And in a moment of frustration, he said, don't worry, I can't marry her anyway. She's not a part of my religion. And Naomi, my sweet little nine-year-old, uh, looked at him with fire in, his, uh, fire in her eyes and said, Mohammed, this is America. You can do whatever you want. 
Now, while she may have lost points on cultural sensitivity, uh, you have to affirm that she is an evangelist for personal freedom. And she goes, you are in a country that has bought you autonomy and it is available for anybody who has the audacity to reach out and grab it. Muhammad, walk with me. We believe that the message of Jesus speaks freedom. And mission happens when we declare that freedom, when we take the message of Jesus Christ anywhere where there's a boundary. So when you take the message of Jesus across a national boundary, that's mission. When you take the message of Jesus outside of your zip code, that's mission. When you take Jesus Christ to a group of people who live across the tracks from you, that's mission. Anytime the message of Jesus crosses a financial, gender, political, or worldview boundary, mission is happening. And the book of Acts gives us this snapshot of the first followers of Jesus engaging in exactly that mission, taking Jesus Christ outside of their boxes outside of their comfort zones and across the imaginary lines that many people had constructed for them. Last week, we looked at the first part of Acts chapter two. The first followers of Jesus were praying in an upper room when the Holy Spirit came on them in power. And they immediately began speaking in known human languages that they had never learned before. And some people in the crowd started asking, what does this mean? And we'll pick up the passage here in Acts 2, verse 13. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I love how Peter qualified that. He's like, if it was 11 at night or 2 in the morning, I might give you a pass. It is too early for these people to be inebriated. Then he goes on to say, they're not drunk. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and sign on the, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Why is God doing this? So that he can get our attention, so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gift of Jesus is for all people. And because God wants that message to make it to every tribe, every subgroup, every culture, Jesus is going to pour out his spirit on the people who already know him. And when he does, that gift, the gift of Jesus, can come from anyone who knows him. It can come from both men and women. It can come from sons and daughters. Listen to that. He goes, when I pour out my spirit, I'm going to pour it out on men and women. If you fast forward later into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 21, you'll realize that Philip the evangelist has four unmarried daughters who all prophesy. Now we know that Paul was present when Philip's friend Peter, Stephen, was executed. So my guess is that there's a high probability that Paul actually knew Philip and knew his daughters who prophesied. So in 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul explains how men and women should prophesy in the church, he's not speaking theoretically. Why? Because he has experienced and expects both men 
and women to share the truth of God in both worship and mission. It's for men and women, it's for sons and daughters, it's for students and elders. I love that line, it says, your young will see visions and your old will dream dreams. Our culture often says that when you hit a certain point in your biological timeline, you don't get to dream dreams anymore. That dreams are for the young, dreams are for the youthful, dreams are for the new. The good news, my friends, is that Joel and Peter say otherwise. They say that when the spirit of God is alive and well in our lives, the young will see visions, they'll see pictures of God, and the old will dream dreams. And if those of us who are in the twilight of our lives and the legacy season of our lives, if we are no longer dreaming God-sized dreams, then maybe it's time for us to ask God for a fresh infilling of his Holy Spirit because that is his design and his intent for us. When the Spirit of God reveals the person of Jesus Christ and the gift of redemption, all sorts of people begin to call on the name of the Lord. Men and women, sons and daughters, students and elders, natives and expats, mystics and skeptics, farmers and financiers. The story of Acts gives us example of God using individuals like Peter and later like Paul and like Philip's daughters to reach whole groups of people. And our lead pastor, Craig Reese, reminds me that there are two distinct episodes that show Paul's ability to reach different people from different environments and different sets of circumstances. And Acts chapter 14 lets us know that the gift of Jesus is for rural mystics. It's for rural mystics, people who live outside of major cosmopolitan city centers who have a very simple and profound way of looking at the world. We read this in Acts 14. In Lystra a smaller village in a rural area. There sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. He looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet! At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form! Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes. That was an ancient symbol of great distress. They tore their clothes, rushed out in the crowd, saying, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are human, just like you. We are bringing you the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations, all peoples go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city, and the next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. So know this, Paul and Barnabas have a specific strategy for speaking to the people of Lystra, speaking to rural mystics. 
They direct people to God and not themselves. When the crowd was tempted to think that Paul was the origin, the genesis, the source of the supernatural power who healed the man, they were tempted to worship him. But Paul said, this message is not about me, it's about God. So whenever there was a supernatural manifestation, Paul didn't take credit for that. Paul didn't write a book about it. Paul didn't start a blog. Paul pointed people immediately back to Jesus. They pointed people to God and not themselves. Secondly, they exposed idols as incompetent. They exposed their idols as insufficient. They say, all of these things that, have been worship, that you have been worshiping, they keep failing you, don't they? They're insignificant. You, you've made these idols with your own hands. Something that you created isn't worth your worship. You have to worship something outside of you, something that transcends you, something that is bigger than you. You've spent your whole life worshiping something that's too small. And then finally, they establish a common ground with the villagers. They say, what do these people care about? Where can, clearly, we're, they're very confused about who God is. How can we start this conversation over? And because they're an agrarian society, because they make their livelihood and their sustenance off of the crops that they can grow, Paul takes a step back and he goes, what do, you, what do the people of Lystra believe in? And they says, yes, they believe in creation, they believe in crops, and they believe in contentment. So Paul asks this question, who sends the rain to nourish the earth? Because for the people of Lystra, everything started with rain. If there was no rain, there was no life. So who sends rain? Paul says, who sends the rain to nourish the earth? And then he asks this, who creates crops to nourish your body? And then finally he said, who provides the joy to nourish your very souls? Who, who creates joy to nourish your soul? And what he's trying to do is get these people to ask questions that run, that run deeper than the surface answers. And Paul is using this argument to say, only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus. Only Jesus can meet the needs of your body, of your spirit, of your society, and your soul. Are you ready to turn to him? Well, Paul and Barnabas explained their message very well, but eventually their enemies came to town and turned the crowd against them. And the result was a riot. And it reminded me of a quote by the great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who says this, wherever Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. And N.T. Wright is trying to say there was a day when the message of Jesus was so mind-blowing, it was so audacious, it was so intense that people would actually react against it. He goes, is it possible that our culture has become so familiar, so bored, so meh with the message of Jesus that it doesn't, it doesn't appall anybody anymore? And N.T. Wright is saying, maybe we have lost out on the majesty and the mystery and the authority of the gospel. And it's not connecting with people so intensely that they don't know how to respond anymore. Here's what I love. Telling others about Christ is never without risk. You tell other people about Jesus, that's, it's not without risk. But know this, it's also never without reward. Verse 19 says that the people of the city, what did they do to Paul? It says that they stoned him and dragged him outside of the city thinking he was dead. Now, if anybody has ever beaten you so badly that they're unconscious and they leave you for dead, that's a bad day. But verse 20 says, after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. How many of you think that's a horrible idea? 
Like, I don't know about you, but if, so, if, if a, an angry mob has assaulted me, I'm catching the next flight out of town. Paul is like, oh, I'm able to stand on my feet. Let's go back in there. Now, if I'm Paul's friends, I'm like, knock yourself out, Paul. We're on our way to the next town. What, what does that say about Paul? What does it say about his wiring? What does it say about his values? That he would all come within an inch of losing his life, turn around and head right back into the fire. Why would he do that? Because Paul values compassion for lost people over his own personal comfort. Paul values mission over safety. Paul values his responsibility to declare the gospel wherever he goes over his own personal rights. And sometimes I get afraid that we're asking the wrong question as society, which is this, how far will we go to protect ourselves? When in reality, the question that Paul is asking us is, how far will you go to lay down your life in the name of the gospel? If we are not careful, we as a society will idolize our right to self-protection, but there's not a verse in the message of Jesus to defend it. On the contrary, Jesus' call to self-denial is crystal clear. He says, if you are to follow me, I need you to take up your cross and lay down your life every single day. The Apostle Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Because my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul says, if you kill me, but I go down proclaiming the gospel, that was a life well lived. Make no mistake, for Paul declaring the gospel was of paramount significance even over his own life. Can I say that? Can you? Will we? Because if we can't yet, we need to ask God why. Paul's race led him beyond the farms of Lystra into the city of Athens, a city of commerce and influence and art and thought. And if Paul's visit to Lystra reminds us that the gift of Jesus is for rural mystics, then his visit to Athens reminds us that the gift of Jesus is for urban skeptics. It says this, in Acts 17, while Paul was waiting for his fellow travelers in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We'd like to know what they mean. And the writer says, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So apparently these guys were like TED Talk junkies. They were just listening to new ideas over and over and over again. So Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, you see that in every way you're very religious. 
For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. You're worshiping something that you're not even sure if it exists. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Isn't that He's saying God in his wisdom determined the times and the places that people should live. God even dictated their national boundaries for one purpose. So that every person drawing breath in that generation could be put in a position where they would be most likely to hear the message of God in a way that they understood. And they, they would know that they're not alone and know that God is within reach. Have you ever paused to consider that out of all of the billions of combinations of human lives, God chose you to be born into your family of origin? God chose you to be born into this century? God placed you in a nation or an environment where you had access to literacy and clean water? God spared you any number of plagues that might have stricken other generations. Why? So that you could be in this moment right here, right now, being reminded of how deeply you matter to God. Paul wanted the Athenians and Paul wants us to know that God knows our names and he has engineered the circumstances of our lives not to excuse us from free will but bring us to a point where we would use our free will to choose him for ourselves. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he set a day where he will, just, uh, will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Amaris, and a number of others. Now, just as Paul and Barnabas had a strategy in Lystra for reaching rural mystics, they also had a strategy in Athens for connecting with urban skeptics. They begin by introducing a new concept. They know that the Athenians love new ideas, so they say, where is the intellectual opening? Where is the life curiosity that we can capitalize on to start a conversation about Christ? They quote philosophers that their audience knows. Paul knows the Athenians are widely read. And so Paul is going to use snapshots. He's going to use snippets. He's going to use lines from poems like plays. It would have been the cultural equivalent of movies that they knew to use as an inroads into a conversation. So he quotes the Cretan philosopher Epimenides, who wrote this of Zeus. He said, Zeus, you're not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you we live and move and have our being. 
And so Paul is taking a line and he's twisting it, he's contextualizing it, he's using it for his own argument to say, you already believe that there's a God who's out there who's created you in your image. I just want to remind you that you've got the wrong God. He quotes the Sicilian Stoic philosopher Aratus. And the line that he's quoting is from a larger poem. And to give you the lines leading up to it, it says this, for every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor are full of this deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we indeed are his offspring. So Paul is saying, you already believe in a God who walks the streets of your town. You already believe in a personal God. You're just thinking of the wrong one. And there's nothing that Zeus has done to prove that he is real. But God's, the evidence of God's existence is this, is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And I, I, can, I can walk you through how I know that to be the case. So everywhere Paul goes, he's taking cultural touch points and he is, he's turning them, he's using them as pivot points to say, you already believe this, let me give you another layer of understanding that will lead you to believe something new. They begin by introducing a new concept. They quote philosophers that they already know and finally they identify their openness to a yet unknown God. Paul uses cultural landmarks to establish common ground. Many of us, when we think about having conversations with people who think or act differently than us, we're intimidated. And God says, I don't want you to be afraid. He goes, even if you feel like that person and you are a, thou a million miles apart, I want you to ask me for wisdom to identify the one tiny sliver where your beliefs overlap. And I want you to start on that tiny beachhead of thought and you work your way forward into the message of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know, ask God to show you in the moment. And know this, God's design is not to leave you hanging. It's not to shame you or embarrass you in those moments. If God has led you into a conversation with somebody that you care about so that they might come to a new understanding of Jesus, he's, Jesus is going to give you everything you need in that moment to be successful in communicating that thought. Now, what happens in these two cities when these guys are done telling, giving the gift of Jesus? Well, in Lystra, the response is a riot. And in Athens, the response is ridicule. People are sneering. But in both situations, a small group of people respond to the gift of Jesus. We know this because later in the book of Acts, Paul visits Lystra again to encourage a small body of believers that are there. And we hear that there are some players in Athens men and women of high status, high intellect, high success who come to faith and get, kind of get the ball rolling for a kingdom presence in that city. And we're reminded that while the gift is for all, only some are ready. But the good news is, like I said last week, we are only responsible for the relay. We're responsible to relay that information. But we are not responsible for the response. I'm responsible for the relay, not the response. I don't know about you, I grew up in an environment where somebody said like, hey, at the end of the day, the goal, it's nice that you presented the message, but the win is for that person to pray the prayer. And in hindsight, I wonder if there are some people that like I strong-armed to pray a prayer that they didn't mean because I thought that the goal of the day was to get them to pray the prayer. That's not true. The goal, especially those of us who believe in free will, and we do, the goal is to present the message and then let the spirit do what only the spirit can do in that person's mind and heart. And if they choose it, praise God. And if they reject it, that's tragic, but that's not on us because our job was to sow the seed and to water it, but we can't make it grow. That, that's in the domain of God and nobody else. But I want you to know this. My friend Alex McManus 
has this great line that I'll never forget about mission. He says this. He goes, the message of Jesus always finds you on its way to somebody else. The message of Jesus always finds you on its way to somebody else. So think of like a bunch of dominoes. When you, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, when you receive the message of Jesus Christ, somebody was so full of the grace and the power and the truth and the love of Jesus Christ that when they fell into you, 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 you couldn't help but receive it. And you're like, wow, I believe that the gift of God is real. Now, if you stay vertical and this kind of chain reaction stops with you, you have failed to understand mission. Because the momentum of the spirit should be so strong that when it bumps into you, you can't help but bump into somebody else. That we are not buckets that receive the truth of God and then let that water get stale and stagnant. No, my friends, we are a pipeline and the message of Jesus Christ flows to us, not to stop with us, but to flow through us in order to get to somebody else. And here's what I want you to remember. That if you allow the gift of Jesus to come to you and then through you, you never know what the result of that conversation might be. You'll never know. You might not ever see on this side of eternity the results or the fruit of that conversation. In April of 1958, a 21-year-old engineering student at Stanford University made a bold decision. The young skeptic and his friends decided to go and heckle a new preacher at an arena called the Cow Palace just outside of town. That preacher's name was Billy Graham. His words so moved that skeptic that he went to a college chapel service to hear Graham again. That experience was a turning point in his spiritual journey. He said the sermon was about the value of a person. And Billy Graham said, if you took all of the chemicals, minerals, water, and bone in a human person and you sold them, the 1958 value of those raw materials would be approximately $2. And so Billy Graham was trying to ask this question. Is a human life worth a candy bar? And he went on to say, of course not. We know that intuitively. He goes, but we know it spiritually when we see that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die a horrific death for crimes that he did not commit so that you and I could be forgiven of the crimes that we did commit and restored into right relationship with a perfect God. Years would pass before the young man finally responded to Christ's call to follow him. After he got married, he and his wife attended a small church that taught a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But even as he pursued his faith, he never lost his hunger for knowledge. He never checked his intellect at the door. Far from it. He went on to go and work for NASA. He was part of the team that produced the Saturn V rockets that helped the United States put a man on the moon. He went on to get his PhD in mechanical engineering and consult the government on energy technology and research. Now you may ask why this particular story means so much to me. And the reason is that because that skeptic turned believer, he's my dad. And I think I can say with a fairly decent degree of certainty that I would not be standing here before you today if Billy Graham had not taken his call to present the message of Jesus Christ seriously. 
and had not filled his missional toolbox with the resources that allowed him to break through to urban skeptics like my dad. Now, just so you know the rest of the story and are reminded that God has a heart for people who come from different backstories. Who did my dad marry? My dad married a farmer's daughter from central Indiana. My grandfather was a poultry farmer. And somebody in their backstory knew that people who lived in their environment needed the gospel explained to them in a way that was meaningful to them and that they could understand as well. So I'm part of a legacy of people who understood the message of Jesus Christ so clearly and knew how to package it in such a way that their audience could respond to it that I had this great privilege of being born into a family of faith. You never know. You never know. You never know what the result of the spiritual conversations that you have this side of eternity are. But that's not a reason not to have them. In fact, because we're not responsible for the result and we're only responsible to relay the message, we can do that with freedom and energy and joy. Don't get me wrong. Communicating the message of Jesus Christ is a very critical task. Many of us would argue that eternity itself hangs in the balance and that the weight of what somebody does with that information is incredibly significant. But I think that sometimes the enemy of our souls tries to sow seeds of doubt and dissent and discouragement into our minds and make us think that if somebody didn't respond in a certain way that we failed and that we're wasting our times. When in reality, God says, just keep sowing seed. And if somebody's ready, if I have prepared them, if I have moved in their heart, they'll respond in their way and in their time. So my hope for all of us the people of Central Wesleyan Church, is that we would believe that because the gift of God is for everyone, it can come through anyone, including regular, ordinary people like you and me. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that your truth is real. And I thank you that your heart bleeds for rocket scientists and poultry farmers and everybody in between. There's not a single person that you didn't lay your life down for. Not a nation, tribe, family, or individual that you did not shed your righteous blood for. So God, I pray that you would infuse us with imagination and energy and inspiration, that you would change our hearts so that we care about what you care about and you would change our minds about the, way, the ways that we think about people who might think differently than we do. God, I pray that we would stop fighting against them, but that we would humble ourselves and love them so deeply in the name of Jesus, in the same vein that people like Billy Graham did, that we would see fruit, that we would see results. We would see families and towns, neighborhoods, even nations turn as a result of our faithfulness to your mission. So God, let our commitment to what you're doing be greater than our commitment to our own small agendas for our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.